I'll go ahead and read our uh, passage for this morning. It comes from James chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Oh, wait, nope, sorry, 13. I don't want in there. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you, don't, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person who does not resist you. Hey, thank you, Brian. Last Sunday, were you here last Sunday? Yes. Did you stick around? We had corn dogs. <laughs> you know, we were hoping to gather, I think, about 50 boxes. In a minute, you're going to see some photos. About 50 boxes for the Operation Christmas Child. And I got the official counts as of last week. We had 127. 127. So that was, uh, yeah, we can clap for that. <clears throat> and I'll tell you what I loved about uh, last Sunday and what we were doing was seeing the kids, seeing the adults do something together. We talk about being an intergenerational church. Well, watching the kids pack those boxes, watching the adults cook and kind of guide them and make sure they didn't stick about three or four things in there, uh, that was a blast. It was a fantastic opportunity for us to demonstrate to our kids that what faith does is faith serves, faith gives, faith loves, faith cares. And so that's what we do at Bergen Park Church, is we don't just serve individually, but as families, as a community, to demonstrate to Evergreen, to this community, uh, that the gospel is real, that God's love is real, and this is a simple, tangible way that we can do that. And so, uh, good job. I enjoyed that. That was a great time. Hey, today we are in James chapter 4, I have to admit. Uh, this is one of those sections that as pastors we avoid, and it's why we preach through books of the Bible. Because see, if it's up to me, there's certain passages that I'm not going to touch because they're too challenging. All right, they're too challenging in how they apply to my life, but they're also pretty strong, pretty strong in the language that they use and the way they describe things. So in James, the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5, what James is describing is a faith that lasts. A faith that lasts. We need wisdom in this world to have a faith that can overcome, on the one hand, overcome the challenges we face in chapter 1, that when trials come, we're supposed to see our trials as an opportunity for God to begin to work in our lives. It's not God punishing us. It's not that God is against us. Rather, it's an opportunity to purify our hearts 
and really to discover what is maybe too important to us or what's pushing God out. And so on the one hand, faith endures through our trials, but there are things in life that are not trials, they're good things. Maybe they're great things like family or great things like wealth, money. These are not bad things. The Bible actually says in the book of Proverbs, it's good to be wealthy. It's good to be industrious. It's good to make money. Money is not evil, but what we'll discover in chapter 5 is often the good things push out the ultimate things. Often the good things that seem really, really good, we invest a lot of time in, a lot of energy, a lot of our our great uh, thoughts go into how can I and what can I do But in the end, those good things can push out the ultimate things. And what James is going to describe in chapters 4 and 5 is how sometimes those good things become ultimate. And when they become ultimate, sometimes God has to take us aside and speak strong words that capture our heart. And so at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we're going to look at the things that last. How can our faith overcome the challenges we face? Hey, and before we do that, I want to pray. Is that all right? Let me pray. God, you're good. Your mercy endures forever. And Father, I thank you for uh, your word. Father, I thank you that you remind us that we are just vessels of clay, that, Lord, you want to fill us and you want to use this time, Lord, to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. So, Father, would you speak? Uh, Would you open our hearts in this time? to look at your word, and, and Father, would it have an impact, uh, not just in our minds, but on our hearts, and because of that, in our lives. We love you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 4, verse 13, sounds like a very modern verse. It sounds like something an entrepreneur would say, a risk taker would say, hey, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to Denver, check out the specs, see what's going on, and we're going to make money. Now, is James saying in chapter 4, verse 13, is he saying it's wrong to plan? It's wrong to take risks? It's wrong to make money? No. He's not saying there's anything wrong with planning. He's not saying there's anything wrong with what the person is doing. Really, what he's going to get at in chapter 4 is to ask this question, what's behind the decisions we make? See, what's driving the decisions we make? What's driving... The plans that we have, the dreams that we have, the hopes, the expectations, what's fueling the activities in our lives? See, it's not wrong to go out and plan because later on in verse 15, he's going to say it's okay to say, hey, we're going to go doing this and that. So planning's not wrong. Investing is not wrong. But what's driving the decisions that we make? And then here's a big picture. You know, what are the assumptions When we start making decisions, what are the assumptions that we just kind of jump into? Assumptions that we that inform the decisions that we make that we don't realize are not ours to take. And see, that's what he's saying in verse 14. It's not wrong to make plans, it's not wrong to invest, it's not wrong to take risks. But what are the assumptions when we make those decisions that are inconsistent, ready with who we are? and then inconsistent with who God is. So watch this, verse 14. And yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. So here's someone, they're watching the market, they see the opportunity, they rush out to take it, and there's this certainty in their heart, in their mind, 
it's going to work out. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city, we're going to do this, and here's the result. And what James is saying, and he's being generous to us, he goes, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. And let's be real honest, uh, we don't know what will happen today, let alone what will happen tomorrow. Now, I've got a good idea what's going to happen today. You know, i got a plan. I'm looking forward to today. You see, after we leave uh, gathering here, we're going to go off to the Broncos game. I'm expecting the Broncos are going to win. They're going to cover the spread. I think the spread is two and a half points. So I'm predicting 17 to 13. Broncos going to win. We're going to go with some, some friends. I think we're going to have a great time. Probably going to leave in time just to get home, bring some food to Melissa, uh, you know, as a family, gather around the table, put the kids in bed, maybe lay down and pray with them and encourage them. I think it's going to be a great day. So I have an idea of how this day is going to go. But here's the reality, not to get morbid. I've got no promise that I'm going to make it out of this room today. I've got no promise that I'm going to get out of the parking lot, that I'm going to make it to the game, that I'm going to make it back from the game, because all of us know right now. I think all of us realize that one phone call could drastically change our lives. I mean, one text that could come during the service while I'm up here, just make sure it's off, <laughs> could change the way that we, we see life. That we're not promised today. We're not promised tomorrow. But what James is saying is we assume upon ourselves a level of knowledge that's not mine. Now, it seems simple. I mean, because we've had a lot of days. And we've seen the next day come right after the next day that comes right after the next day that comes right after the next day. Well, eventually, if you see enough days coming, you start to think, you know, I'm God. I'm not going to die. Everything's going to go well. Or, or maybe you're in that stretch right now. You're in the good stretch. You know, good times. This is, this is a good season of life. And we start to assume, okay, that's just how it's going to go. Every business decision is going to turn out well because, see, the last four did and therefore, the next four are going to go well. And what James is saying is you're not recognizing who you are. You're not all-knowing. Even though you may be a great business person, even though you may be a great author, a great thinker, a great leader, you don't know what tomorrow will hold because there's only one person who holds tomorrow, and it's not me. And so he's saying in your planning, it's good to plan, but know who you are. And so, church, who are we? You ready for this? I don't like it, to be honest with you. I don't like what James says. He says, Jason, you are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. I don't like that. I don't like being a mist. I've seen a lot of mist. You know, you guys promised when we came up to Colorado, it would be sunshine. <laughs> Over the last two months, there has been a ton of mist. And it did appear for a little while, and then it, it vanished. Now, what's he comparing? Okay, what he's saying is not that our life feels like a mist, but in comparison to the one who knows, in comparison to the one who holds tomorrow, and in comparison to the one who sees all of human history and every event and how it plays together compared to God, we are not permanent. Life is but a vapor, it's but a shadow, and in comparison to the mountain, we are mist. 
But here's the reality. God is more permanent than the mountain. I mean, God is more majestic. God created the mountains and put them in their place. And if we are a mist and compared to the mountains, we feel small. Well, how small should we feel in the presence of God? And he's saying, in your decisions, how much does that factor? You know, how much does it factor that we don't know everything? That we may have great insights into business and life. That we may have great insight into family and raising kids. That we may have great technical abilities. We don't know all things. We don't know how tomorrow will go. And the reality is we are not permanent. See, the challenge that he's describing is we, we have this tendency to believe that I am autonomous. And to be autonomous means to be a law unto myself. I write my own schedule. I make my own day. And the results belong to me. Are you with me? And all that he's trying to communicate to us is do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as God sees us? Are we being honest when we make plans? That we see ourselves not in the light of yesterday or how well I've done, but to see ourselves in the light of God. So the question is, here's the question, okay? In your decision-making, in your planning, what's missing? And it's a big miss. You know, I've had a lot of small misses in life, you know, opportunities. You ever had those? I was talking, this is funny, I was talking to someone just the other day, and uh, I had an opportunity to take a three-point shot. You ready for 7000 $777 for Foxwoods Casino. It was at a Celtics-Mavericks game. We were living in Boston. I got this call on a Tuesday. I guess I filled out one of those papers. You know, you never think you're going to get a call. You fill out one of those little papers and you put it in the box. Guess how many tennis balls are in here? Well, I got this phone call on a Tuesday, and it was to take a shot, a three-point shot, for $7,777. Well, if I made that shot, I'd be able to take a half-court shot. You ready? For $70,000. Now, I played high school basketball. I'm not bragging. They let me on the court. This is by far the most important shot I ever took. And I missed. Yeah, I did. I practiced and I missed. But here's what happened. It wasn't just that I missed, but I carried that failure for years. Middle of the night, right? Darn it! My wife would look at me and she'd say, what? Can't believe I missed that shot. <laughs> well, what James is describing is, is so much bigger than something like that. And, and yet we carry that, don't we? I mean, those failed business opportunities those missed chances, that really permeates our soul. It, it infects the way we see ourselves. And yet what James says is there's something we're missing in our planning that's bigger than any decision we've made. And what we're missing, ready, is God. What role does God play when you make decisions? See, that's what he's going to in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, he's not just talking about planning because he says, if the Lord wills, we will live. Meaning, I don't hold my life. My life isn't guaranteed. No matter the medicine, the doctors, no matter what I do to take care of myself, my life is in God's hands. And when the mist 
vanishes, God will determine when it goes. And yet we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. That in our planning, we forget God. And it's such a big reality. I mean, how, how can we forget God? But see, that's the evil that James describes. The evil in verse 16 is that we write God out of the picture. And the arrogance is, we're okay. The arrogance of my life, just making decisions and going about and doing things the way that makes sense to me, is to think, it's my decision to make. The arrogance is so simple. The arrogance is so simple. What I'm boasting is I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is mine. My time is mine. My life is my family is mine to mess up how I want to mess it up. My time is my time to do with it what I wish. And what he's saying to us is that's not your decision to make. It's not yours. Rather, I belong to God. God's given me everything that I have. He's created me. He's given me my talents, my resources. And so, church, what does it look like for us to make decisions, to plan, to take risks, to make money, to have a full life, a life that's abundant, and yet to do that in a way that keeps God at the center and recognizes life isn't eternal. Because in chapter 5, he's going to start talking about the last days, and all of this ties together. You know, when money becomes big, when success and wealth becomes big, it's because you think life is going to just continue on. And that what I have is my worth, not just net worth, it's my self-worth. And I'm putting all my value not in God because, see, when you start making decisions apart from God, you're taking the place of God. When you start making decisions apart from God, you're taking the place of God and you're going to replace God with something else. Because as human beings, we've got to worship something. When we go to the Broncos game today, we're going to see worship. What is that? What is all that cheer? I mean, these people hug strangers. They're breaking bread together. It's worship because there's a glory in that. There's a beauty in that. Our hearts are attracted to something greater than who we are, to a mission that's bigger than just my life. And what James is saying is in our decision-making, we have to take into effect who God is and what God has done. And we need to start saying, if the Lord wills. Now, that doesn't mean that after everything you say, hey, let's go have breakfast, if the Lord wills. Think I'll have an omelet if the Lord wills. <laughs> Maybe some coffee and some cream. If, that's annoying. It's annoying in the church, and it's definitely annoying to non-Christians. He's not saying say that after every statement, because that's, that's not necessarily what he means. Meaning, does that reality have permanence on your heart? Are we making decisions out of who God is and what he's done? Are we just going about in life, kind of picking our feet up in the stream of life? and allowing life to take us wherever it wills. No, he says we need, to, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. You know, this isn't a modern problem today. It's interesting, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32, you'll see this on your handout. Uh, this is a problem that goes back to the beginning. Because in Jeremiah 2, 32, it says, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days 
without number. Been to a wedding lately? Ever seen the bride come down? Forgets to get dressed? Hair a mess? You know, groom got the bedhead going? Comes in 20, 15 minutes late? No. Now, why does a bride not forget her attire, virgin, her ornaments, meaning her jewelry? Because her wedding day matters. If something matters, the decisions you make in life are going to be directed by what matters. Well, does God matter? Does God matter in our planning, in our business, in our finances? Does God matter? Now, what is the number one thing that Scripture says often takes the weight of God out of our lives? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again, this is an old problem. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel's coming out of Egypt. They've been enslaved, been crying out to God, God, do you love me? Do you, do you see me? And God responds, He rescues them. And then He gives them this warning, Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore your fathers to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. Listen, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Meaning, who made this possible? Who made the wealth possible? Who set you in the economy that enabled your skills and talents to result in the success that you have. I mean, did you choose the country you're born in? Anyone? How about the family you're born in? How about the skills and talents? You happen to be very good at mathematics. You happen to be an engineer in an age and in a time that values engineering. Listen, if you're living on the top of a mountain in Tibet, your math skills don't matter. If you live in another period in time, your talents, your family, it's not going to make as much of a difference. Who set the deck? I mean, who set the table? And what he says is when good things come out of that, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Be careful that you start thinking, I know it all, and I'm going to last. What he's saying is be careful that you forget the Lord. You know, Jesus said, watch out for the love of money. Paul says, watch out for covetousness, greed. Because what happens is wealth, value, success, it has weight. I mean, every day we see the weight. You see it on television. I mean, you see it in what people wear, what people have. You go by the house, you... Every single day, you know, they say that 360 times a day, through all the different media outlets we have, and they say that we spend 10 hours a day stuck to media. That can be your phone, your computer, your tablet, the radio, television. 10 hours a day, we are stuck on some kind of a device. 360 times a day, that device is telling you you're not as good as you think you are. 
because you need this. That used to be cool, but look at that. What is that? It breeds discontent. I need, I want, I have to have. And James is saying, God is what's permanent. And to have God is to have all things. It's to have His, have His glory. And so what's the solution? Look down at verse 17. He says in verse 17, here's the solution. So whoever knows the right thing to do, but fails to do it, for him it is sin. It almost seems as if verse 17 is disconnected from the rest of the book. He's not moving on to a new subject because James is going deeper. He's not saying, hey, church, you're doing the wrong thing. You need to start doing the right thing. Rather, what he's saying to us is there is a good thing, a great thing that you're missing out on. There's a good that we should be doing that we're missing. And what does that look like? It's Deo Valente. For those of you that know Latin, it means God wills. Deo Valente. See, how do we know the will of God? Real quickly, three things we need to start doing. We've got to get in the Word of God. To know the will of God, we've got to hear from the heart of God. And God's heart is captured in His Word. God's beauty is captured in His Word. And we've got to gaze, as, as David says, upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. The Spirit of God, which reveals the presence of God, is in the Word of God. The Spirit of God that reveals the presence of God is in the Word of God. Church, are we in the Word of God? If you're not, it's not possible to see the beauty of God. That's how God's chosen to make Himself known. We've got to be in the Word of God. Second, we've got to be in a community of people that value the Word of God. You've got to have men and women around you who will not let you be apathetic. Because I fall into apathy and I'm a pastor. I fall into the same things. We're not any different. I just stand up front. We're not any different. And the same things that tempt you tempt me. And I know as a pastor, I've got to have brothers I've got to have sisters around me, and I appreciate it. And I was talking to Sarah earlier today. She was saying, you know, I'm praying for your family. Guys, that's gold. Because I know how easy it is for me to slip and to fall. How easy it is for me to fall into arrogance and pride. How easy it is to set my heart on things that don't belong to me. And say, you know, I want that, God. No, I want this. And what God is saying, hey, is your, your life has fallen in good lines, in good places. Trust me. We need community but not just sitting in community. We need people that love us enough to say, I see things that are going on in your life and in your heart, and they're going to lead to disaster. You with me? You need the Word of God. You need the people of God. But you need a community of shepherds. You know, this is something we don't like. We don't like to submit to leaders. But you know what the Bible says over and over? It says submit. It says obey your elders. Trust those who teach you that we need people around us who will speak the word and speak life. We need a community because the church is not what we do. Listen, the church is who we are. We are the people of God, filled by the power of God and His word and His Holy Spirit to show this community what God is like. We need each other. So here's the challenge. You ready? Chapter 5, just real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time there. How does he start? I don't like it. You rich people, weep 
and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Now, let's just be real honest. In the United States, to be in the 1%, can we get honest? $250,000 a year. Pretty good salary. To be in the 1% of the United States, you have to make $450,000 a year. Hey, that takes me out of the running. I guess this isn't for me, is it? But what's the 1% of the world? I was shocked. I thought it'd be a lot higher. 34500 dollars I'm back in the running. $34,500. Puts you in the top 1%. I think we're all rich. Here's the challenge. As I said before, we live in a culture that every single day is showing you what you don't have. And what he's describing in chapter 5 is the danger of materialism. See, materialism is always looking up. It's always looking and saying, there's somebody that has more. There's somebody that's got bigger. So I'm not doing that bad. You got that disease? I do. It's always somebody's got more that's driving better and we make assumptions about what they do and what they have and those assumptions are often wrong. And what materialism does is it causes us to look up, to look at others and to start comparing ourselves and saying, you know, I'm going to take myself out of the running because I'm not doing that bad. And what James is saying is you got to start looking at the heart and asking yourself what really matters to you. It's not about comparing yourself with someone else. Because I'll tell you, sometimes, you know, you can be real poor and real greedy or real rich and real generous. And you can be real rich and real greedy and real poor and real generous. It's not about how much you have. It's about how much of what you have has your heart. And what James is doing, and this is Grace Church in chapter 5, he's trying to separate things from your heart that are going to lead to death. You with me? The way he has to do it is just like your dad did. Except hopefully he's doing it better. He's got to use some strong language. He's got to give you a warning. And he's speaking to us as the church, and he's saying, don't store up, as Jesus said, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Isn't that what he's saying? He's just parroting what Jesus said. He's he's saying, hey, silver and gold, even though they last, they will corrode in comparison to God. So watch out what you attach your heart to. And so he goes on in verse 2, Your riches have rotten, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is corroded, their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. What it's saying there when it says eat your flesh, it's talking about the damage it's doing to your soul. Because Jesus said where your treasure is, there the heart's going to follow. Meaning the place we need to look for our spiritual health is our credit card bill hate to say it's that obvious. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. What am I looking to? What am I looking at? What am I pursuing that's giving me permanence, value, and wealth? Well, where does the money go? And I'm not saying this because Burger Park Church needs your money. I'm saying this because God wants your heart. And the danger is the things of wealth and success and money, I'll tell you, they hold on tight to the heart. 
You know, I was real generous when I had nothing. I don't know if that was your story. I remember going to seminary, 1997, my little S10, 250,000 miles, everything in the back under a tarp. I was generous then. But you know what happened? Got a mortgage. Got kids. Someone told me about retirement. I didn't know what that was. I mean, I, I had so much debt, I probably would have never made those decisions. So many school loans. And then all these responsibilities started coming, and, and I started realizing, wow, i got to start caring for this stuff. And what happens is, as time goes on, those things start becoming really, really weighty. And then I got a better car and, and get a nicer house, and over time, those things start to have a weight and a pull on my life. And, and I don't realize it, but even, even in, in my life, I'm starting to put my identity in what I have and what I do and what I own instead of who God is and what He's done for me and what He wants to do through me. Because the reality is God is the king of glory. And he's given you your life for joy. God wants us to enjoy what we have. He wants us to enjoy life, to celebrate life together. But the only way we're going to celebrate life together is to get our life and the things we have on track with God's life. And here's God's life. God is generous. God is incredible incredibly generous. That's where James is taking us. Because notice the description that he has. What are the symptoms that something has too much hold on my life? And as I look at this, I see myself. Notice verse 3, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Now that last phrase, it's funny, this week I was I was taking a walk. Sometimes I'll head over to the, the park over here, just kind of walk around. And what the Lord was telling me is that phrase, the last days, has no weight in my life. I'm just being honest today. That you're hoarding wealth, but notice the emphasis is in the last days. Meaning, the, this is the fourth quarter. It's two minutes to go. There's no timeouts. I guess the refs have timeouts, right? They stop the clock. This is the last days. At any time, Jesus can return. Now, because we've had day after day after day, you know what that does is it lies to you. And it says you're permanent. Jesus isn't coming back. Don't worry, you're going to make it to the wedding next week. Retirement's coming. We have this sense that everything's just going to continue. But he's communicating to us, no, God is permanent. And when he says, I'm coming back, he's coming back. And there is a day where every knee will bow and tongue will confess. Now, some will confess out of judgment and others will confess out of joy. And he's saying when we look at our wealth, it says something about what we worship. And it says something about what we value. What is the reality the last days have permanence in your heart? I think it doesn't for many of us because we live in a world where we see so much of what people have and we're constantly told what we don't have and we're not taking that to the Lord. And we're not being honest before God. You know, these are the things, Father, I want more than I want your holiness. You know what I want, church? I want to be all-knowing. Wouldn't that be awesome? All-knowing. God is all-knowing. That'd work out well, because I'm always wondering, what's he thinking? You know, is that person like me? I don't know. See, I want that. I want to be all-powerful. I want to do things and, and see the results that I want because I put a lot of energy into what I do. I'm sure you do too. 
You value your job, you value your family. Well, I want it to be as productive as possible, as successful. I want to be all-powerful. You know, I want the qualities of God that God hasn't told me I can have. I want the qualities of God He hasn't told me I can have. You know what I don't want? I don't want the qualities of God He's told me I can have. What are those qualities? Holiness. Goodness. Compassion. Generosity. Righteousness. But see, those are the qualities that lead to life. And what happens is when you get something in your heart that pushes God out, you start holding on to things that aren't yours. And you start pushing aside the things that God wants for you. Which means what happens is you're blind. And what he's describing in this passage should wake us up, right? We'll eat your flesh like fire. You know, fire is a good thing. You keep it in the fireplace. It can heat the house. It's a great thing. But if it gets out... It tears everything to the ground. Money's the same way. What he's saying is money's a good thing. But if it gets out, if it gets a hold on your heart, it tears the whole house down. What does that look like? I think some of us probably have testimony to that of parents that got divorced. And why did that divorce happen? Well, we just need to make a little bit more. We need to be a little bit more successful. What does it mean to say if the Lord wills over your career, over what you have? There's a friend that I had back in Texas, and I'll tell you, I had a great deal of respect for him because when I got around him, this guy, uh, he had a lot of energy. You around people like that? High achievers, high output. He never seemed to have a bad day. And he was a part of a company, very successful, did very, very well. I think people saw his natural abilities, his leadership, his charisma, and opportunities came, and came really, really quickly so that the age of a 30, you know, he's kind of getting up that ladder. He's starting to get pretty high. There's not a lot of people above him. And we started praying together because he was saying, there's an opportunity in front of me, and I know the guy that's in that job. I know the hours that he's spending. I know the stress in his life. And my boss just said, you can have that, that job. And on the one hand, if I take that job, listen, I'm going to have an influence over a market and over countries, that's exciting. I love to have that opportunity to influence how this product is used. But here's what I realize. If I take that job, more than likely, I'm going to lose my family, I'm going to lose my marriage, probably going to lose my life because I don't want to live like that guy lives. What's he doing? If the Lord wills. Now, it could be that what God would say to him is, hey, you can take that job, but you're going to do it differently. That could be true. But for him, what he saw was a temptation. And here's the danger, and many of you know this. When you say no to the CEO, he may not ask. He may not ask you when the next opportunity comes. But you know what you have to do? Deo valente. It's not my decision to make. I am where I am, and I am, and I have what I have because God has been gracious to me. And if I know the good I ought to do, and I ignore it, that's death. That's death. You know, church, just real quick, I don't know about you, it's really painful to be forgotten. Are you with me? It is so painful. I think as we head into holiday seasons, we need to be aware. There's a lot of people that don't have family. 
don't have, they're forgotten. But how painful is it to be forgotten by someone that you love? I mean, it's painful when an acquaintance doesn't know you. You're like, okay, no big deal. Or maybe somebody that should know your name and they don't know. It's kind of funny, you know? They keep calling me Bob. It's like, it's not Bob. I don't know how many times i got to tell you it's not Bob. That's odd. You know, a friend forgets your name. But what if it's somebody you sacrifice for? What if it's somebody that you love, you pour out your life for? What if it's somebody that you've rescued not just with the giving of money, you rescued by laying down your life. That he was in every way, in every nature God did not consider Philippians 2, equality with God is something of grass, but what did Jesus do? He made himself nothing. You know what it feels like to be nothing? It's a vapor. It's a mist. Jesus, who in every way had permanence, made himself nothing. And on the cross, you know what he said? Father, you have forgotten me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened? He was forgotten. The one who sacrificed all things, did all things right. On the cross, Jesus Christ was forgotten so that when we forget God, he would not forget us. So that even though we're here today, and listen, we know, we know we've got some repenting to do. What's repentance? It's just setting our heart right. It's just admitting to God, you know, God, that's where I am. I admit that. I can see that in my life. There's certain things. There's decisions that I made this week, and I didn't take into account anything that you said. And for some of us, there's areas of disobedience. We just don't care. Whether it's sexual disobedience, pornography is, a, is something today that's just rampant in our society. You know, 33% of pastors are addicted to pornography. 33%. And that's true among pastors. I imagine it may be a little higher in the church. There are things in our life that we think is okay. And what God is doing to us, and he's saying, hey, that's not your decision to make. You belong to me. I laid down my life for you so that you might have life. Well, trust him. Jesus became nothing for us so that we might become the heart and the love of God. And see, when you treasure God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're going to start loving our neighbor as ourself. And we're going to start living a life that reflects the generosity of what God gave. God is generous. Church, are we willing to ask him today to show us the areas of our life that we're kind of holding on to too tightly? Are we willing just to admit, Father, here it is, have your way in my life. You know, that's sometimes the scariest thing to say, God, just have your way. And he's not going to show you everything at once. I mean, God's patient with us, isn't he? He's not going to show you the whole thing he wants to change. Maybe there's this one thing right now you can say, Lord, I submit myself to you. Would you begin to work in my life? And would you do this? If that's where you are today, that there's things that you know you need to change, would you reach out to someone who is passionate for Jesus? Doesn't mean they're perfect. Maybe they're a little older, may have some gray hair, and say, hey, how did that work out in your life? Because here's what I know. I'm not wise enough to know what it says, what it means to say the Lord wills in your life. I don't know what that looks like, but there is someone in this room who does and who's been there. And as the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to passionately push one another towards Jesus and because of that, towards a life that matters. You with me? That's the good news. That's the gospel. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, your grace is sufficient for us. You tell us your power is, your power finds its perfection when we admit our weakness. 
Uh, Lord, we, we can see in, in our lives that, Lord, I, I just confess so often I can listen to the world uh, in such a way that your word at times has zero impact. It is weightless. Lord, that sometimes there are moments where I can even see the impact that you're having in somebody else's life, the joy that you have, and it seems like that joy is so distant and so far because my heart is so captivated by things that you've told me. Jason, that's going to that's gonna destroy your marriage, your life. It's not what I've created you for. Father, through the power of the Spirit, would you convict us in the areas you're working on? Show us, Lord, how we can respond to you. And Lord, then show us how in joy, in community, in generosity, you can use us to elevate the gospel, which is of weight. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.